This is a talk by Joel titled Quantum Mechanics and Consciousness, recorded Sunday, January 26, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Part of the mission of the Center for Sacred Sciences is to present the mystical teachings in a way that's appropriate and understandable to people in a scientific culture and in the scientific age. And until the first quarter of the 20th century, that would have really been a contradiction in terms to talk about presenting mysticism in any sort of scientific format. But the quantum revolution has changed all that. So in order to understand how mysticism can relate to modern science, we've got to understand something about this revolution that happened at the turn of the first quarter of the 20th century. Quantum mechanics today is the science of all matter. The foundation of modern science is physics, and quantum mechanics is the foundation of present-day physics. Actually, maybe we should call it quantum theory because there's nothing mechanical about it. It's a holdover from an old way of viewing things. And let me explain a little bit in a simple way why that's true. If we look at this podium here, my notes are sitting on this wooden podium, this w would be called uh, nowadays a classical-sized object, a, a large object, an object that's visible and that you can pick up and put down and so forth. But this object is made up of wood fibers. If we analyze the fibers, we get down to molecules. But molecules themselves are only a form of these atoms, these more primitive primary particles. And as we now know, these atoms are made up of little subatomic particles. So really, there's nothing in this but subatomic particles. So if we understand from a physics point of view how the subatomic particles work, we understand the whole ball of wax. So the foundation of modern science is the science of subatomic particles, which is quantum mechanics. Heinz Pagels, who's a very conservative scientist, by the way, writes, the new quantum theory became the most powerful mathematical tool for the explication of natural phenomena that ever fell into human hands, an incomparable achievement in the history of science. No single idea has ever had a greater impact on technology and its practical implications will continue to shape the social and political destiny of our civilization. Practical devices such as the transistor, the microchip, lasers, and cyrogenic technology have given rise to entire industries at the vanguard of technological civilization. He didn't mention atomic bombs, but there would be no atom bombs except for uh, quantum mechanics. And look how much just that one thing has reshaped our whole world. So this is not some sort of esoteric physics off in some laboratory. This is a physics that is right now shaping our world. So, quantum mechanics overthrew Newtonian or classical mechanics, as it's called. And Newtonian physics, or mechanics, was the physics, and therefore the foundation of the last era of science, which ran from somewhere around the middle of the uh, 17th century up until the end of the 19th century, basically. 
So to understand how revolutionary quantum mechanics is, we have to go back and at least have some understanding of classical mechanics, the old Newtonian physics. So, first of all, just a little historical background. Newtonian physics was named after Isaac Newton, who was really the first one who conceived fully the basis of classical physics. There are other people that have done work before him, Galileo and Kepler and so forth, but he drew all these various research programs together in the, about the middle of the 17th century, and he formulated certain laws of motion that would apply to any physical body. And this was a, a fantastic achievement. And in those days, they conceived of the smallest physical body as an atom. The word comes from the Greek, and it means indivisible. So they had a conception of like a little marble that was just a hard little thing, and that was the smallest piece of matter. So these laws of motion applied to all these physical bodies in all sorts of combinations. And they were expressed in a new mathematics, actually, that Newton himself developed. He called it fluxions originally, but it came out to be what we call calculus today. And so I'm going to try and give you a little example, a very oversimplified, way oversimplified example of one of these laws and how it works and how simple, but how spectacular. So here in the blackboard, and I'll try and sit back a little bit. We're going to reduce one of Newton's laws to a very, very simple formula. And that is D equals V times time. D is the distance, V is velocity, and T time is the time. What time is it? <laughs> velocity basically means speed, except it has a sense of a direction to it. So just like when you drive a car, what speed are you going? You could say, what velocity are you going? It's, uh, when you're driving a car, you're going in some direction. And that's the basic difference between the term velocity and speed. So the distance equals the velocity or the speed times the time. So let's take an example of uh, what this might be. And let's say we're, uh, we're driving in a car and we're going 50 miles an hour. Okay. So there's our, there's our uh, velocity. So now we have D equals 50. We understand that being miles per hour times the time, right? Okay. So I've drawn a little uh, graph up here. Um, and this represents on the bottom here. It's another law of physics. <laughs> what you bash into falls over. <laughs> On the bottom here, there are miles. 25 miles, 50 miles, 75 miles, 100 miles, 125 miles, 150 miles, right? On the vertical line is uh, increments of hours. Half hour, one hour, one and a half, two, two and a half, three. They're in half hour increments, right? Does everybody follow this? Okay. So, we have a car starting out here. It's going 50 miles an hour. And I'll ask you, after an hour, how far has it gone? 50 miles. Well, so, we look up here. One hour, 50 miles. The car is here, right? Okay. 
How about after an hour and a half, how far is the clock? An hour and a half, clock 75 miles. Okay. How about after two hours? 100. 100. How about after three hours? 150. 150, right? All right. We can fill this in here. This is what we call the trajectory. Now look at this. By this simple mathematical formula, if we know how fast it's going, we can tell where the car is going to be six hours from now, you know? Uh, or you can go the other way around. You can tell the time they're going to arrive if you know the distance. They're going to be going 600 miles. You can call somebody up and say, hey, in three hours, they'll be there. Get ready for them, you know? Put the dinner or the soup on or whatever. This is tremendously powerful, and it's such a simple idea. And it's the, it's the use of mathematics applied to bodies in motion. Okay. Now, this is the theory anyway. How could we test this to see if this formula really works? Get in a car and drive. Another way to do it would be actually to get some people to stand along the roadside with stopwatches and see if you actually arrived, you know, at the somebody stand here at the 100-mile mark. And as soon as you passed, they'd click their stopwatch, and they'd say, well, was it actually two hours? Yes, it was two hours. There are ways you can test this, make observations, and see if this works out. Okay. There are a few complications here. For instance, uh, let's take somebody, uh, uh, an archer, shooting an arrow. Basically, the same sort of law applies here. You have the arrow flies, and you have the velocity. But now we're going to have other things operating here. We're going to have forces, the force of gravity pulling this arrow down, right? So the arrow's going to start having a curve because of the way the force of gravity acts on it. And then there's going to be friction because the arrow is going through air and air is made up of these little particles and it's bouncing off them. So it's not going through a pure vacuum. So these are various forces you can take into account. Gravity, you can take into account friction, uh, if there's wind blowing, and things like that. So the equation gets pretty complex when you start throwing in all these forces. But the idea behind this is that if you knew the initial conditions of every atom in the universe, and the initial conditions meaning you knew how fast it was going, its velocity, and you knew all the forces that were going to act on it, that are in the universe acting, you could predict the state of the universe at any time, past, present, or future, as far ahead as you want, as far back as you want. You would know the whole total state of the universe. Does everybody get that? Uh, nobody ever thought that they could actually do that. But it gave you a picture of a universe that ran like a clock. And this was Newton's original idea that God wound up the universe like a clock and then he let it go. And actually in Newton's day there were a few little Anomalies that were later straightened out, so God had to sort of poke his finger back in once in a while to keep things going. But this was how this idea of a clockwork universe began. Now, let's notice something about this, because this is modern-day materialism. The whole modern-day materialist philosophy crystallized around these Newtonian formulas. 
there are certain things we have to assume about the world to have this to be true. For one thing, we have to assume that these bodies exist continuously in time and space. In other words, that, uh, you know, I, I shoot an arrow and that it's actually flying through time and space. It's not just suddenly disappearing and then suddenly appearing someplace else or something like that. That's called objectivity. The world of matter, physical matter, exists objectively. Whether you're observing it or not, looking at it or not, before you were born it was there, after you drop dead it's going to be there. It's always out there doing its thing. Now, truly speaking, if we go back and look at uh, how we actually would test this, the only way we can test it is by making a series of observations. Now, let's remember this, that we draw in this trajectory after making a series of observations, we assume there's a trajectory behind it. It's a perfectly good assumption. It worked for 200 years, but we're going to start questioning that. Uh, the other assumption here is this assumption of determinism. That, in fact, every physical effect has some physical cause. Things just don't happen for no reason. Do you know what I mean? This piece of chalk here lying there, it's not just going to fly up in the air and come back down. And if it does fly up in the air and come back down, I'm going to start looking for magnets, or you would. You would think this guy has, you know, done some bit of magic. In point of fact, Modern, you know, sleight of hand magic is all based on physical laws. It just has a certain deception in there. But uh, we are convinced that every physical effect had some cause. Now, these assumptions are not inherent in the mathematics. They're philosophical assumptions. And materialism is really a way of conceiving a world that this mathematics could apply to. So there's nothing in the mathematics that tells us that the car has to be going along a trajectory. All the mathematics tells us is if we stop to observe it at any point, this will work out. Okay? Everybody understand that? Now there's one fly in the materialist ointment, so to speak. And that is if we ask the question, what is consciousness? What is consciousness? Consciousness is a very mysterious thing. You can get some idea of this by thinking about a robot that would duplicate everything a human being can do. It would have television cameras for eyes, do you know what I mean? It would have sensors that would pick up the uh, molecules in the air that give you the uh, sense of smell and all that. You could build one, in theory, that totally replicates everything a human being could do, but it wouldn't be conscious. Where does consciousness come in? What is consciousness? In the materialist worldview, consciousness is an epiphenomena of matter. An epiphenomena means it's not really real. It's some sort of kind of illusion that happens when matter gets real complicated, like in the brain, and all these processes are going, and somehow this sort of sense of consciousness arises out of that as an epiphenomena. Uh, Carl Sagan. Everybody knows Carl Sagan is? Yes, just die. A, a lot of people who are interested in new physics and all that admire Carl Sagan. He's actually a hardcore materialist. Uh, here's how he expressed it. He said, My fundamental premise about the brain is that its workings 
what we sometimes call mind, are a consequence of its anatomy and physiology and nothing more. In other words, there's nothing more to us than this mechanical working of the brain, you know, neurons firing and chemicals going and all that. There's no really such thing as mind. It's just a, an epiphenomenon. Now, one thing that uh, materialists have never been able to explain is how the brain produces this epiphenomenon. What actually happens? At what point does consciousness arise? Can you really find the mechanism at which consciousness comes into being? No one's ever been able to show that, prove it, demonstrate it, or whatever. So let's just keep now this in the background. There's one thing in our experience that materialism could never adequately explain. Okay, now the quantum revolution. This worldview and Newtonian physics was the basis of science all the way up until the end of the 19th century. And at the end of the 19th century, scientists started digging into the atom itself, which originally was thought to be indivisible, like just a little hard piece of marble. But now, when they discovered radiation primarily, they began to realize it wasn't indivisible at all. And they began to realize that atoms weren't these solid little individual things. And the first idea was that they were like little solar systems. There was a nucleus, and then these electrons all spinning around the nucleus. How many have ever seen a symbol like that? Quite. Right? Wow. <laughs> my lack of artistic talent. And this was the original uh, model that, the, that they first conceived that an atom would be like. It was like a little solar system. And this was very neat, you know. I mean, this is, you have the same pattern repeated at the, at the most minuscule level that you have at the, in the macrocosm. It was a wonderful idea. Unfortunately, it's totally wrong. And it's still used today, and that's very unfortunate. And it's still used in schools, uh, especially in like high schools and stuff, to sort of teach kids about this. It's absolutely wrong. It's totally false. So when they started investigating, they realized the atom could not be like this. If atoms were like this, each atom would last some fraction of a second. It's totally unstable. And they, they started discovering these, uh, what are called in science, anomalies, things that just don't make sense. You, you, they work out one way, you think you're on the right track, and something comes along, it's a contradiction, it doesn't work. And Anyway, we're not going to get into all the, the history of what brought scientists to this conclusion, but we can uh, start to get an idea of these anomalies, the primary ones, they're all related, through a simple experiment called the double-slit experiment. Have you ever heard of the double-slit experiment before? Okay. This is an experiment that sort of sums up the problem. So let's give an example of this double-slit experiment. First of all, we have... We're just going to call this a source of something. That's the source. We don't know what it is yet. And then we have a some sort of detector over here. And then we're going to have put a wall here with two little slits in it, holes, windows. Everybody got that? Now, first, let's see what would happen if this is an experiment set up for macro objects. And let's imagine the source is a shotgun that shoots out these pellets, right? And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to close off one of these uh, slits. 
So the shotgun shoots off these pellets, just at random. They're going all over the place. Some of them go through this slit, right? The rest will bounce all around. Some of them go through the slit, and we're going to keep shooting the shotgun off over and over and over again. And what do we expect to find? We'd expect to find a little pile of pellets building up over just opposite that hole, right? Right? And then uh, if we open the next slit and do the same experiment, we would expect to find two piles of pellets, one after each hole, right? Everybody got that? There's nothing complicated about that. Okay. Now, let's do the same experiment, but we're going to use water. This is a water wave machine. It works with paddles and stuff, and all this is water, and it sends waves instead of particles. So we're having waves of water going out here. And they hit this. Now, we only have one slit open, so then part of the wave breaks through. And let's say our detector now is a wall of corks that are all loosely connected so that they can absorb the wave. And, and as the corks move, they register something. There's ink on the back or something. I don't know. Anyway, the ink on the back of these corks would start to pile up right opposite this slit, right? Now, it's interesting about waves, though. Waves are different from particles because if we open the other slit, when the waves hit this barrier, they break up into two waves. So we have something like this going through. But at this slit, we also have another wave set up. Everybody got that? So one wave started out, but then this two slits breaks up. Now we have two waves going. Now, waves have an interesting property. And you can go out and look at the ocean. You can see this. When two waves come together at their peak, they amplify each other. Maybe it's like a stronger wave, a bigger wave. And if a wave and a trough come together, they cancel each other out. So, and I have not drawn this precisely, but these places where they're crossing, for instance, are amplifying, right? Now, notice like for right here, there's a big amplification. So, what you end up with on this detector is a pattern that looks something like this. Right? Okay, everybody following this so far? Okay. So, if you didn't know whether we're shooting shotgun pellets or waves at this detector, it's very easy to tell by just looking at the pattern when the two slits are open. And you can tell right away, this is a totally different pattern than the pattern of the shotgun shells, uh, pellets, which was just a little heap here and a little heap here, right? Everybody got that? Now, instead of shotgun pellets and instead of water waves, we're going to fire electrons out of here. Or we could fire photons or any subatomic particle this applies to. And the first thing we're going to do is just fire through one slit. We close off one slit and we fire away. Now, there are two things to, you got to know about this. First of all, this now detector, let's say it's uh, like a Geiger counter. You've know, you heard of, seen in a movie anyway, the Geiger counter. It picks up a bit of radiation, goes you know, and they're going around, so, oh, we're hot here. Each one of those deets is a hit by a particle, right? So whatever kind of detector this is, it's always detecting individual hits like a particle. 
So we fire off these electrons and well, we get just what we think we should get. A little pile of hits, right, on that screen. And they are particles. I mean, they show up as dee 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 you know, just like that. Right? And this is, you know, just what we'd expect. Now we open the other slit. And what do we get? We get a wave pattern. So this raises the question, are electrons or photons or any subatomic particles, are they particles or are they waves? What are they? They always show up as particles, but when we we're going through two slits, they act like they're waves. There's a, a pop word around called a wavicle. Somebody said, well, it's a wavicle. <laughs> a wavicle doesn't mean anything. I mean, you could call it a, you know, I don't know, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You can call it anything you want. Something cannot be a particle and a wave at the same time. A particle has a very definite location in time and space, and a wave is spread out. That's the difference of the meanings. You can't have something that's very definitely located and spread out. It's like a square circle. So, this is really a way of demonstrating one of the basic paradoxes of quantum mechanics. What are these kinds of little things? Now, we can do something even more interesting here. We can actually fire one electron at a time. Because we might think, well, what's happening is they're going through and somehow they're bouncing off each other and setting up these waves, right? So we're going to fire just one electron. Now, when we fire one electron, and we have both slits open, we see one hit, one particle hit. Bit, a particle hit there. Bit, another one hit here. Bit, bit, and two more here. Bit, 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 like that. But after we watch for a while, what happens? We see building up this wave pattern. How can a particle interfere with itself? Or another question we might want to ask is, which hole did it go through? The particle leaves the, the electron gun, then it's going this way. How can it split up and go through two at once? Our problem is, as it turns out, we are still thinking in the old materialist way. We think that these little particles have objective existence in time and space and follow trajectories. But they don't. And as long as we keep trying to force this physics into the old box, we come up with impossible things and paradoxes. You cannot think of it that way. We have to give up our uh, preconceptions about what the world is to understand this. Now, there's something else about this that ties in with this, and this is a little bit more tricky to understand. Scientists wrestled with this themselves for a long time. Are they waves? Are they particles? And they finally realized that they are waves, but they are not physical waves, like a water wave. What they are is waves of probability. Waves of probability. Now, what does that mean? Well, we, uh, we're quite familiar, actually, with in general. Insurance companies use them all the time, is set their rates and whatnot. And I'm going to show you what a wave of probability is by taking a concrete example. We're going to figure out the probabilities 
for accidents happening in downtown San Francisco during the course of a 24-hour period, okay? So we'll, again, draw a graph like this. And we'll put on the bottom graph, let's say a 12-hour period, a 14-hour period. We'll start at 6 in the morning. And 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, noon, 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock, okay? And then we'll put number of accidents over here. And I have no idea what they would be for, uh, let's say a month or something like that. But let's just make up some figures. Let's say um, one accident, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. Now, we start for a year, however long we wanted to make this. And we could start plotting the accidents that occur in downtown San Francisco at these various hours. Well, before 6 o'clock in the morning, there wouldn't be many, probably. Nobody's driving around. But 6 o'clock, you know, rush hour starts. Well, 6 to 8, there are a lot of cars on the street, and the accidents go way up. Maybe we start having an accident about 4 a day. And then they start going down after 8, and then everybody's at work. There's a big lull. Then at noon, they creep up a little bit because everybody's out driving around again. Then they go back down about four and then at six at night they go back up again right it's a wave a wave of probability you see what i mean it's not a physical wave not like a water wave there's nothing physical here i mean it's based on physical events but the wave itself is a purely mathematical wave everybody understanding this <laughs> somewhat at least anyway okay the uh, wave, back to our double slit experiment just briefly. The wave we see here is the probability that the particle will be observed at this place on the detection screen. There's no wave going through here. There's no particle going through in any sort of trajectory. The wave is the probability wave. One of the results of this is the universe is not fundamentally determined. There is not a physical cause for every effect. Let's say this is a photon, uh, some sort of material decaying and sending off photons. There isn't a trajectory from this that leads in a direct line to here that makes something happen there. There is an essential randomness. If I fire off a photon from this, I cannot tell you where it's going to land on the detector. I can only tell you the probability over a period of time that most of them are going to pile up in the middle. But if I fire one off, there's no way I can follow like I can with my arrow or my car and tell you ahead of time where it's going to be. I can't call up and say, get dinner ready. Because they might not uh, appear in Portland, they might appear in uh, San Antonio, New Mexico. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's this element of randomness that is now introduced into physics, and this certainty, this determinism is now lost. This is why Richard Feynman wrote, uh, Richard Feynman's a famous American physicist who died not too long ago. 
Another interesting change in the ideas and philosophy of science brought about by quantum mechanics is this. It is not possible to predict exactly what will happen in any circumstance. You may say this is because there are some internal wheels which we have not yet looked at closely enough. No, there are no internal wheels. Nature as we understand it today behaves in such a way that it is fundamentally impossible to make a precise prediction of exactly what will happen in any given experiment. You see, the, the thing about the streets of San Francisco there, although statistically we can't say there's definitely going to be an accident here and this car and this car are going to be involved in an accident here at noon. We can just say that over the period of time there are going to be roughly 10 accidents in downtown San Francisco at noon. But from a materialist point of view, that's only a practical uh, concession to uh, our limitations. Because from a materialist point of view, actually, if you knew what, where all the atoms were and all those cars and stuff, you could tell exactly. But in quantum mechanics, you can't. Now, he says there are no internal wheels, and this is a fundamental fact of nature. Now, a lot of people at this point think, well, you know, they're missing something. This is what Einstein thought originally, by the way. But let's look at this equation that describes this wave and see what's different about it than a normal statistical wave that you would describe by regular mathematics. This is described by Schrodinger's equation. And I wrote Schrodinger's equation out up here, and I'm not going to try to explain it, so don't get worried. <laughs> That's what it looks like. If you read any of these books or you know anything about the new physics or heard about it, people talk about Schrodinger's equation or the wave function, it's sometimes called. And it's very often just written with this Greek letter, shy. But there's a difference here between this wave and the mathematics you would use to figure out the wave of accidents in downtown San Francisco. There's something funny about this mathematics. Now, look at this one letter right here. An I. You see that little I? Sort of buried in there. Does anybody know what I stands for, just mm -hmm. conventionally in mathematics? <clears throat> yeah, the square root of one. Square root of minus one. Minus one, thank you. Everyone knows what square root is, right? What's the square root of four? Two. Two. Square root of four. And, and what else? Minus two. Minus two. That's two square roots, right? Minus two times minus two equals four. Any number multiplied by itself gives you the thing you're looking for the square root of, right? What's the square root of 1? Plus 1 and minus 1. Ah, very good. Okay. Now, let's just say something else here. Supposing for some reason we wanted to take the square root of one of these things. Uh, let's say uh, the square root of 16 miles. Okay, 4 or minus 4. Well, we don't have any minus 4s on this map, but that's okay. We've got a 4. And if for some reason we wanted to show where the square root of 16 is, we could plot it right here, before, right in there, see, on this, on this graph, right? Okay, now, what's the square root of minus 1? I. <laughs> I, it, it, I, it is I, but... What does it mean? 
Where would you find it on this graph? What? You have to make a new graph. <laughs> make a new graph. It's <laughs> like a complex number graph. It's off the map. This is a graph that represents time and space, physical time and space, as we define a physical world. It ain't on this map. I can assign positions to any of these things by two numbers. I'll take 75, one and a half, and these are called coordinates. Those two numbers uniquely define on this map a particular point. But this doesn't have any point on the map. Now there's another property of I that you should know, and I, you'll just have to take my word for it. Any I times anything, let's say some A, then takes on that property, it's imaginary. And if it's I times A plus 5, that's called a complex number. In other words, a whole number takes on this property. I can't get that I out of there unless I can do something. Now actually, this number, this equation, this wave function, does not actually tell us the probability of where the electron or photon or whatever is going to be. This is an unintelligible number in that sense. To find out the probability, we have to square that equation. Now, what happens when we square something like i times 5? Who can do this math? Go ahead. What, what do we get? We well, square both of the factors in i squared. Okay, square both of them. Okay. i we squared get... is the same as the square root of negative 1 squared, which removes the square root sign. Right. So minus 1 times 25. 25. So we get minus 25. Okay? You see how by squaring it, we get rid of the i? That's the only way we can get rid of the i here. So in point of fact, it, when we take the Schrodinger equation... What? You call it? We get rid of the i. We have to square ourselves. <laughs> That's right. So you're always trying to be hip, and you're supposed to become square. <laughs> <laughs> so when we do square this and it has to you're really squaring the amplitude of the wave and all that you get the probabilities everything works out nicely and all that but the trouble is this equation is what describes the subatomic particle when it is not observed it is not on the map this is why Feynman says there are no little wheels in here. It's not something we haven't discovered. It just isn't in physical time and space. And as long as we keep trying to think of it being in physical time and space, we're going to run into these problems. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? It ain't there until it's observed. This is a shocking idea. And this is why Niels Bohr, he's the one, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, says if you're not shocked by quantum mechanics, you haven't understood it. It is that revolutionary, that radical, that shocking. And just to get some idea of uh, how shocking this is, let's go back to our classical diagram here and our distance equals vt. And supposing for some reason we can only express v as a uh, imaginary number. So we're going now 
50 I miles per hour. Now, this is interesting. If we have observers along the way, let's say at the 50 mile mark, the observer will be there, and boom, the car is there. He punches the, the stopwatch, and sure enough, uh, an hour has gone by, and there's the car. It's observed. Now the car goes on out of sight. And now it's going 50 I miles per hour. So between this point of observation and the next point of observation, where is it? No. It's not on this map. It's unobserved. It doesn't have a trajectory. Everybody follow that? Okay. Going back to the double slit experiment, and the electron leaves the electron gun, and there's the barrier with the two slits in it, and the, the detector screen on the other side, it ain't there in between. It's not the answer is which hole is it going to. It's not going through any of the holes. It is not there. It's in a state of potential to be in one hole or the other. And in the, in the case of just two holes, it's in a, a state of potential to be in 50% in this hole and 50% in this hole. Not that the thing is split into two. And that's called, in quantum mechanical terms, a coherent superposition of states. Now, this is, again, a hard one to, to get a hold of because it seems like and if you understand that easy enough. But let's take a normal, uh, the way we normally think of objects, like here's a quarter with a head and a tail, and we flip it, and it's sitting there. Now, statistically, it's got what chance of being heads and what chance of being tail? 50-50. But we're convinced it's actually under here, it's either head or tail. We just don't know, right? So we'd have to say, well, it's a 50-50 chance. In quantum mechanics, it's not that it's actually... Uh, a head or a tail. It is in a state of coherent superposition. It's 50% heads and 50% tail. Everybody following that? So in that sense, it's going through both. And, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, how, but then how can that be? Ah, it? Because it's possible. Well, yes, every experiment ever done has borne this out, but, but this is the thing we want to try to think about it. And then what happens when we look, bingo, it's heads, or it'd be tails. And we could check our statistics and keep flipping it and keep track, and we'd see, yeah, about 50% of the time it's heads and 50% of the time it's tails. So could you, is that the, when it's unobservable part, so that when you open it up, and that makes it... That makes it is. Ah, exactly right. Now you got it. Now, this is called, and we're getting now to the heart of the problem here, this is called the collapse of the wave function. This shy describes the state of a subatomic particle when it's not being observed. The instant we observe it, this disappears, and we're back on the map. We can plot exactly where it is with some any sort of Cartesian uh, graph there, you know, including three dimensions. Yes, I mean this is just for for simplicity's sake, you know. Here, but yes, we're back in physical time and space. When it's not observed, though, it's in this coherent superposition described by the wave function. So something very mysterious happens here, 
And the question becomes, what collapses the wave function? Now, Werner Heisenberg, who was uh, another Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, Schrodinger, these were all the founders of quantum mechanics. He wrote, quantum theory does not allow a completely objective description of nature. It's totally changed since classical mechanics. We cannot say that nature is out there and everything continuously exists as we could say before. When it's not being observed, it is not in a state that in any sense that we can understand exists physically. Now, up to this point, there's no controversy. This isn't my interpretation or anybody's interpretation. Uh, any physicist, whether conservative, liberal, whatever, would agree with this. I'm just presenting the, the facts in a simple way as I can and to the best of my understanding. But now we start to get a little controversy. And when we ask this question, what collapses the wave function? Why does the whole mathematics just change completely, radically, boop, in a flash, instantaneously? Bohr and Heisenberg originally said, well, it's any act of observation does this. Heisenberg says, the observation itself changes the probability function discontinuously. It selects of all possible events the actual one that has taken place. Any act of observation, this wave function represents all the possible places, if you like, that this electron or whatever subatomic particle could be. And then once you observe, you select out the one place that it is now is. So it, it doesn't have any more possibilities. Do you see what I mean? And they thought of this in terms of any kind of machine could make an observation. A Geiger counter, for instance. When you hold up the Geiger counter and you hear that bit, that means the wave function's collapsed. And now the particle's right there. But this raises an interesting question because isn't a Geiger counter itself made up of subatomic particles? What makes a Geiger counter privileged that it can collapse wave functions? It's just made up of the same thing it's supposedly collapsing, right? So then isn't the Geiger counter also in a state of coherent superposition? Now, Erwin Schrodinger, who, by the way, did not like this, but he, he's the one who invented this equation. He said afterwards, if I'd known what this was going to be, I never would have done it. <laughs> he wanted to show how ridiculous this was. So he made up a thought experiment to show how ridiculous this is. And actually, one of those funny things, the thought experiment turns out to be correct. I mean, nobody has a solution for it. He said, suppose that we do an experiment, and we get a cat. Spooky. <laughs> that looks like spooky, doesn't it? <laughs> 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 it's a frown. We get this cat, and we're going to put this cat in a box. And in this box, we're going to have a source of um, some sort of a subatomic particle, some atomic material that decays and gives off, let's say, a little photon, right? See, so as they decay, they spontaneously give off these photons. And this is going to be hooked up to some detector that's hooked up on some sort of hinge business, that's hooked up to a wire, that's hooked up to a hammer, that's suspended over a poison bottle, a bottle of poison. So... 
when or if this <coughs> is released, it hits this detector, this uh, tripsome mechanism, the hammer falls, breaks the poison bottle, and the cat dies. Okay? If it doesn't decay, then nothing happens and the cat's alive. Now, let's say the wave function says that there's a 50-50 chance that this will decay in uh, an hour, right? Now we close up the whole box. Don't look at the box. Now, what is the state of the cat? Coherent superposition. Yes, <laughs> because everything is in the same state of coherent superposition. It's 50% alive and 50% dead. And, huh? and at the end of an hour, we open the box and we look in, and suddenly the cat is either alive or dead. The whole wave function collapses. So Schrodinger was trying to make the point that really there's no difference between this one little atomic particle and the detector and the hammer and the bottle and cats and big macro objects. They're all in coherent superposition. So what collapses the wave function? It's not Geiger counters or large-scale detectors. Now, we can extend this problem out a little bit longer by saying, well, the scientist who goes, opens the box, aren't we physically made up of subatomic particles? From the point of view of science, what happens is, here's the door to the box, right? Here's the scientist with his eye and his brain, okay, or her eye, or her brain. <laughs> she opens the box, and photons come out. Now, photons are all in this coherent superposition, right? They hit the eye. The eye is in the coherent superposition. Now, you see, we're still thinking materiously as though there were trajectories here, but the point is this all goes into coherent superposition, including the brain. So what collapses this wave function? Everything physical is made up of subatomic particles. Everything physical is in coherent superposition. Well, in the early 30s, John von Neumann started thinking about this. He's the one who almost single-handedly invented modern computers. And he also invented a mathematical model for all this, a Hilbert space model, which we won't get into. But he's no slouch. And he started thinking about this, and he said... It's got to be something non-physical, because nothing physical can collapse the wave function, because everything physical is in the wave function. And the only thing we know of is consciousness that is non-physical. So it's got to be the entering in consciousness of something happens in consciousness. That's the observation, and that's what collapses it. So it's not the scientist, actually, who's collapsing this. It's the fact that the scientist is conscious. And the brain collapses, the eyeball collapses, the photons collapse, the whole thing, you know, collapses. And there is the cat in the box, either alive or dead or whatever. This is uh, why Eugene Wigner, Nobel laureate, he wrote, when the province of physical theory was extended to encompass microscopic phenomena, through the creation of quantum mechanics, the concept of consciousness came to the fore again. 
it was not possible to formulate the laws of quantum mechanics in a fully consistent way without reference to consciousness. If one speaks in terms of the wave function, its changes are coupled with the entering of impressions into our consciousness. So this was the answer that von Neumann and Wigner came up with. Now, Wigner also had a little switch on it, because then he asked, well, whose consciousness collapses the wave function? Because supposing uh, Mary Song is opening the door in the other room there, and I'm here, and I don't see Mary Song, she's unobserved, has the wave function collapsed? And his answer was, yes, actually any consciousness will collapse it. Uh, mystics wouldn't necessarily agree with that. It raises an interesting question about how many conscious there are and what is consciousness and whatever. But it does mean one thing. It means that consciousness is necessarily, at least in some respects, non-local because it's collapsed for everybody. Right? So what does this non-local mean? Well, in fact, quantum mechanics, independently of all this, exhibits non-local effects, which are, again, very strange which we're not going to go into too deeply here, but uh, it's worth a little, a little look at this. In classical physics, every effect has to be transmitted through time and space. It's either a force that we can think of as emanating through time and space, or one thing actually physically backs up against the other thing, right? In classical mechanics, there's no room for angels mucking around, you know, anything coming from outside. There's no room for God shaping the hand of history. Uh, there's no room for any of these mind-over-matter sorts of influences. Everything happens locally. That's a local cause and effect, or the effect is transmitted through time and space. That's what the definition of locality is. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of this experiment. You can read about them in these books. But it turns out in quantum mechanics that if you have a source, let's say of photons, where they're correlated, they've interacted with each other somehow. They're, they're all coming from the same source here. And you can send them out one end of the galaxy to the other. And a photon... It has a funny, it has a, you can think of it as like an axis. It's like the Earth has an axis. You can think of it as a, uh, like a, a martini olive with a toothpick stuck through it. And if you set up a polarizer, this is how your, your polarized sunglasses work. If the polarizer is in one direction, only those photons will get through that are polarized in that direction. In other words, if they're off kilter, you know, that, that little toothpick stops them from getting through. This is why sunglasses, uh, polarized sunglasses, cut down glare, because only certain light's getting through, a lot of bounce light's not getting through. Now, you send these photons out here, and you set up a polarizer, and this is a way oversimplified description of this experiment. It's a little bit more complicated, but it just gives you the idea. You set up a polarizer here, and the, the photon then takes on a certain polarization, a certain angle. Now, in classical physics, there's no way that what's happening over here can affect what's happening over there. But it turns out that this photon that was correlated with this one has exactly the same angle. If you, if you force it to take on a different angle, this one will take on a different angle. This has been proven 
through two experiments. The last experiment was done in 1983 by Alan Aspect in Paris, and that shocked the pants off everybody, especially those poor people who were hoping to go back to some materialist view. So, in point of fact, quantum mechanics exhibits this non-locality. It has non-local proportions to it that are impossible in classical mechanics. If von Neumann and Wigner are right, at the very least, this means that consciousness is not derivative. It's not an epiphenomena of stuff in the brain. It's not something that evolves and grows and so forth. It's fundamental to the universe. It's built in. Nothing could manifest. There would be no universe without consciousness. So it becomes primary to the universe. It's a total flip in our way of thinking. Now, not everybody is happy with von Neumann Wigner's solution, obviously. And other solutions have been proposed. Not quite solutions, but other ways of looking at this have been proposed. And I'm going to just tell you briefly about them, because they are as weird or weirder than this one. The first reaction, this isn't from scientists, but other people anyway, is just denial. You know, it's like death. You go into a state of denial. A wonderful example of this is Karl Popper. Has anybody ever heard of Karl Popper? He's considered, uh, at least the early part of the century, one of the great philosophers of science. He was a great champion of Einstein's uh, work. and the, uh, Science was his god, basically. You know, that was his religion. And then this quantum mechanics came along, and he didn't like it, and he kept trying to make it materialistic. And finally, um, is a quote from a letter that he wrote to a guy named John Clauser, who was one of the guys who verified this non-locality. And what he proved was, the universe cannot be both objective and local at the same time. Well, you can think of it one way, but you have to give up the other one. So he says uh, to Clauser, he says, Many thanks for your immensely interesting paper. I still cannot believe that objectivity plus locality is untenable. Should Wigner, too, be right in discerning that QM implies solipsism, then QM must be false, in spite of yours and Friedman's shattering results. So here's a man at the end of his life who's going to reject the experiments. He just will not believe it. No matter what the results are, he is just not going to believe it. And there are a lot of people who just take that out. It just cannot be true. The majority opinion among physicists is really uh, uh, sticking with what Niels Bohr and Heisenberg first said. It's usually called the Copenhagen interpretation or the standard interpretation. And that is that any act of observation collapses the wave function and that a classical Geiger counter will do it. And they basically say, look, these things are real, the things that we have around us, you know, clocks and desks and so forth, and this quantum mechanics is just mathematical abstractions. It's just a way of calculating it. And I call this uh, the don't ask, don't tell position. <laughs> and it's summed up very well by Richard Feynman when he writes, uh, this was a lecture to his students at Columbia University. He said, don't keep saying to yourself if you can possibly avoid it, but how can it be like that? Because you will go down the drain into a blind alley from which nobody has yet escaped. Nobody knows how it can be like that. <laughs> and it's basically the, the uh, working principles of a working physicist. They, don't, they, they would say this is all a philosophical problem. Don't bug us about it. It works. We're going to go ahead and we're going to build greater lasers and all that. We don't know how it can be like that. Uh, 
there are two objections to this. One is the original objection that Schrodinger raised that they nobody's ever answered. Where do you draw the line between uh, classical objects and subatomic objects? I mean, there's no line. This they are made up of subatomic objects. And the other uh, interesting thing about this position is. It's very much like the church astronomers after Copernicus came out with his theory that the uh, center of the universe was the sun and not the earth. And most educated people didn't believe it. I mean, they didn't believe it just because of common sense. Look, you know, how can the earth be spinning around? You know, they knew you spin a potter's wheel around, you know, things go flying off it. And the things aren't flying off the earth. It's not moving. I don't feel it moving. This is just some mathematical stuff that Copernicus cooked up. And it's not true that the church banned its use. The calculations were much simpler, and everybody was using them. You weren't allowed to teach that it reflected reality. It was just a convenient way of calculating things. The earth was the center of the universe, obviously, to everybody. Nobody had a problem with that. And this was just mathematics, like you say, something Copernicus made up in his head, you see. It's a really parallels, amazingly, this attitude that we have this wonderful calculating device, and of course the world is the way we think it is. If we want to look ahead a little bit, we see what happened eventually with the Copernican Revolution. It might give us a clue what's going to happen with this. Uh, there's one little movement called neorealism that some people still fits with. Um, originally, Louis de Bruegel, who originally actually came up with a wave idea, not the final equation, but he had the idea that these were like physical waves. Uh, and then Schrodinger took it and found the real equation. Uh, Louis de Bruegel and David Bohm, who some of you maybe have still heard of, they spent a lot of time trying to go back to a, a objective model. And eventually David Bohm worked out not a true model, but a model that shows you you could possibly work out a model that these waves would be like little pilot waves, that each particle has a pilot wave. Each pilot wave extends throughout the whole universe. And every pilot wave is in touch with all the other waves, and they all are getting uh, information about the position of everything else in the universe, and that's how they go through these strange maneuvers. Um, and there's several things wrong with it, and nobody really takes it seriously anymore. Uh, one of the things is the mathematics is incredibly cumbersome, and, and uh, this is much simpler. Second of all, this information has to go faster than the speed of light. Physicists don't like that much. And finally, you know, it really is hearkening back to the old medieval uh, Aristotelian physics, where planets and stuff were guided by angels' intelligences. This was their view of physics, that these little intelligences followed everything around, and that's what made the universe work. So this has that sort of quality about it. Uh, and then there's another interesting one, the Many Worlds Interpretation by Hugh Everett. And he says what happens is the wave function doesn't collapse. He gets rid of this problem. There is no collapse. All these potential worlds all exist. Actually, they're all in parallel universes. And they're infinite. Because, you know, the potential for the, for the electrons to be here, 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 or, or all the way over there, and each one determines a whole different world. And each of these parallel universes, we exist in them, but we don't know it because there's this insurmountable boundary. So we're all sitting here in a parallel universe, except I'm holding a blue piece of chalk instead of a white piece of chalk, you know. And then you can go farther as the probabilities decrease. You get farther and farther away from this reality. It actually works out mathematically. There's nothing wrong with it. It could work. 
Most physicists don't like it because the idea of infinite universes being created at every moment infinitely tends to violate Occam's razor, the, the <laughs> principle of less is more. And also, it doesn't really get rid of the problem of consciousness, though, because it's, consciousness isn't collapsing wave functions now, but your consciousness is determining which universe you end up in. Why am I in this universe and not that universe? Well, because I've observed things this way, and that puts me in this universe. So you haven't really gotten rid of the role of consciousness, which is what, you know, people would really like to do. I mean, the, the diehard materialists would. So, in any case, uh, these are some of the other ways of interpreting this. But you see, they're just as weird, if not weirder. And in any case, uh, the one thing that almost everybody agrees on, except for one or two Bohemites, and I think even Bohm gave up that attempt, uh, is summed up by Heisenberg very well. He says, the hope that new experiments will lead us back to objective events in space and time is about as well-founded as the hope of discovering the end of the world in the unexplored regions of Antarctica. In other words, if you still believe that the world really is, you know, flat and you're going to sail off it, there's some end of the world, and there are places in, in Antarctica we have not yet explored, maybe you'll find the edge of the world there. Mm -hmm. That's about the same probability we're ever going to go back to any sort of materialist philosophy mm -hmm. here. So, finally, what does this all have to do with mysticism? Let me say right off the bat, quantum mechanics does not prove mysticism. First of all, mysticism does not need quantum mechanics to prove it. Mysticism is verified by a different uh, kind of knowledge than this scientific knowledge, as impressive as it is. And you don't need to know quantum mechanics to become enlightened. But maybe mysticism can actually help us understand quantum mechanics, which is an interesting twist. You know, religious people are always looking to get science to prove them right. And actually, we're in a position now where we don't really have a worldview uh, or paradigm. We have this weird physics, and we have all these ideas about it. One of the big uh, questions people ask about this whole business that consciousness collapses the wave function, they say, well, I mean, where was the world before there were people, you know? Or if it's not just people, if it's cats before worms or whatever. And again... If you're looking at it from that point of view, the conscious derivative that evolved, yes, that's a fair question. Mystics, however, have always insisted that consciousness is fundamental. It is more primary than any manifestation of anything. And the manifestation of the whole cosmos completely depends on that. So this is why, for instance, uh, Huang Po, Zen master, he called the primary reality mind. He says... These mountains, these rivers, the whole world itself, together with sun, moon, and stars, not one of them exists outside of your mind. The vast chillicosm exists only within you. So where else can the various categories of phenomena possibly be found? Outside mind, there is nothing. This is not inconsistent with quantum mechanics by any means. Uh, Hindu mystic Lali Shwari, she called the ultimate reality Shiva. She says, The world is the play of the universal consciousness, appearing as matter as well as conscious beings. That consciousness is Shiva. It is also you. Different tradition, but we again have the basis of a worldview that is not at all incompatible with, with quantum mechanics. The great Sufi Ibn Arabi writes about Allah, 
Allah is the spirit of the cosmos. It's hearing, it's sight, and it's hand. Through him the cosmos hears, through him it sees, through him it speaks, through him it grasps, through him it runs. They don't have a word consciousness in, in uh, Arabic, but this is the whole idea. God is the hearing. Not that God hears. God is the hearing. God is the seeing. God is the doing. God is that consciousness. So these mystics of these traditions have long ago said the fundamental reality is this consciousness. The universe, the whole world of form and everything, is a manifestation of this reality. This is uh, what Dr. Wolf called shifting the base of reference. And that is now, supposing we stop asking, and it's been a dead end, how does consciousness come into being? Take consciousness to be primary and ask how the world comes into being. It's like what Copernicus did with his astronomy. The base of reference used to be the Earth. That was the center of everything. And then you asked, how did all the planets work out? And Copernicus shifted the base of reference to the sun and said, let's take the sun as stationary. And then let's now ask how it all works out. And suddenly it all fell into place in a much more beautiful way. Another uh, uh, objection that people have is this business that consciousness somehow collapses a wave function. But if you read through the mystical literature, the mystic's view, at least in many, many traditions, is that no collapse actually takes place. And it solves a big problem that physicists have about exchanges of energy, and there doesn't seem to be any accounting for how can consciousness affect matter and so forth. No true collapse takes place. Everything is already present in the mind of God, if you like, in consciousness. It's already present, but because it's infinite, because the potentialities and the possibilities are infinite, nothing can possibly manifest. And we can show this very crudely with this board. This board contains already in potential... I mean, it's actually not in potential, it's already there, every possible plane geometric form. It contains triangles, it contains circles, it contains what, parallelograms, what a, is that a parallelogram? Hexagrams, whatever. They're already there, you see, I haven't added anything, I haven't created anything <coughs> by drawing these lines. What I've actually done is blanked something out. I've made something visible pop out at you a form through a negation represented by the, the chalk here. But I haven't created any more blackboard than it's already here. You see, everybody get this? So that's just one example of how you might take a mystical paradigm and start applying it to the world that quantum mechanics describes for us. And finally, let me say one thing here about um, quantum mechanics. When we first hear about it, I did, and I think most people, it so violates our common sense ideas about the world that we sympathize with Karl Popper and say, well, I don't care what your experiments are. I don't believe it. It can't be right. If we think about it a little bit, what it does is it violates our common sense ideas about the world, but it matches perfectly our experience. And you can all see this for yourself. I want you all just to close your eyes for a minute. Now notice that world is gone. It is no longer there. Now open your eyes. And now it's popped into existence, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. And we close our eyes and it's vanished. And we open our eyes and it's there. When we're not observing, things aren't there. In our own experience, they're only there when we're observing. Right? 
But when I rise, it pulls, I could poke this person. Ah, but then you're observing with your finger. Now pull your finger away. It's, it's, she's not there. Observation isn't just visual. It's any sort of observation. So, as I said, you don't need to know anything about quantum mechanics to pursue a spiritual path, to become enlightened, or anything like that. I personally found it very useful on my path, even before I really understood anything about it. I was years later that I, I uh, lived with a physicist and his wife, and I spent uh, many nights staying up till 3 o'clock in the morning hashing these things out. Is one reason I have some layman's understanding of this. But I read the Tao of Physics, which is an early book about this. I didn't bring this out and recommend it. It'd be fine to read. He supports one theory that's sort of gone by the board, so I don't usually recommend it anymore. But the one thing it did for me was this. I had been a hard-headed realist and a materialist, and I started entering a spiritual path, and a great obstacle for me was this is just all a lot of hokey, you know? I couldn't, couldn't be. And I read the Tao of Physics, and I didn't understand it, but I did understand one thing that made very clear to me, that my ideas... <clears throat> my old Newtonian classical ideas about the world were obsolete. They were not scientific. So if I was holding on to that worldview, it was a sheer act of faith. Just like some fundamentalist Christians hold on to the idea that the world was made in seven days, as described in the Christian Bible, and they don't care what science says or not, they just have faith. Well, they have faith, that's their world, I'm not going to knock them, but... If you're hanging on to a classical Newtonian worldview of the world as these little bits of atoms bouncing around and it's all determined, it's got no more foundation in science than that fundamentalist position. So you're welcome to hang on to it. That really shook me up and at least made me open. And I thought, well, you so arrogant. Here you are stuck on some idea and, and you, you look down on people who just believe in things because of faith and this is what you've done. You've absorbed this in your education and now you're hanging on to it. So this was my experience with it and even if you don't remember any of the details of what we talked about here or couldn't describe Schrodinger's cat in the box, remember this because most of us were brought up with a materialist education. We absorb these ideas as little children from our parents and our uh, teachers and so forth and they, they have a tremendous power you know, sometimes you can just start to doubt that well, this couldn't be all true. And your mind harkens back to that safe little, simple little world of billiard balls you learned as a child. And if you just remember, wait a minute, that's fine if I want to live in that world, but it ain't science. And don't fool yourself and think, oh, well, that's what science tells us. It's not what science tells us anymore. So if nothing else, if this uh, talk arms you against that tendency of the mind to fall back into these old patterns that we were taught as children that are now are long uh, gone as far as their validity is concerned, then that would be useful. So, if anybody wants to ask any questions, so fire away. Basically, there's only one consciousness, which is omnipotent and omnipresent, which is the and, mystical tradition which fits in with the quantum science. Exactly, exactly. And again, you can go ask yourself, how many consciousnesses do you know directly? I've never heard of anybody say they knew more than one. And then you can start to observe what is consciousness. And we have to start changing our ideas a little bit about consciousness. It's very helpful to start to give consciousness as a space. Instead of something I have, a space in which events occur, perceptions happen, thoughts occur, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And stop owning consciousness, though there's some thing, there's some cloud around your head or something. Right. And you start looking as a kind of space, and this is, meditation is very helpful to this. And it's everywhere. 
Yes, and then it's not yours. So this whole problem whose consciousness collapses doesn't arise. You see? Yeah. Uh, the mystics seem to be unanimous in their testimony that all physical objects are nothing other than consciousness itself. That that is the fundamental essence right. of uh, physical matter. Do you know if anybody has looked at quantum theory from that viewpoint that this photon, this electron, is nothing other than consciousness itself? And how does that work with the equation? No, I don't know, frankly. And I, it'd be a very interesting thing to pursue. You see, this is how a mystical worldview might actually end up guiding research. You wouldn't just take the mystic's word for it, but it gives you a different way to, a different framework to look at this. Start asking different questions instead of asking the questions out of the old paradigm. It might be very, very fruitful. We don't know. So that old question, you know, when a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody to hear it, is there a sound? It's all come back now. Yeah. <laughs> and all these books that everybody dismissed because this was... Right, it was ridiculous. Right. You know, of course, then. Is, is there a tree in the forest if right. no one's there? Is now the question, who cares about the, is there sound? <laughs> Where is the tree when no one's right. looking at it? All right, well, it's been a long morning. Why don't we bring the formal part to a close? And you're welcome to stay and have tea. And until we see you again, peace to you all. Thank you.